This week on Writers Inc. I think the hero's journey has a lot of stories and was conceived in a very white individual version of storytelling, but also a very straight one. So when you're adding in all of these different elements like of indigeneity and queerness into a narrative, you do have to start veering off from that because it just it no longer makes sense because you're you're not exploring these individualist themes. You're exploring themes of community and connection and communal identity that kind of pull you away. And that's definitely something Kira experiences. She's not getting the job done that she wants to get done when she's alone. It's not until she starts working with other people and building out a community and finding that family that things actually start to happen and that there's progress. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm getting old because I'm geeking out today cause I got a hardwired connection for my internet in, in my office. And we were just talking before on, on the air. Like it's, for me, it's like, it's refreshing. Cause like now I don't glitch at all, which is, which yeah. is awesome. Um, but like now I'm pointing out flaws in absolutely everybody who does glitch yeah. and, and pointing, pointing we, fingers. We noticed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been picking, for, the, for the listeners, I've been picking on these guys all day long. But the problem is you go down this rabbit hole, like Kevin had mentioned, like he doesn't, you, you don't have an internet connection in your office, right? Like you, you could have when you built your house, but you yeah. didn't actually put it in. I so was now cheap, you've got, so I didn't do it. Yeah. Well, so now, now, I've now got you've to got to, yeah. now you've got to do it. But the, the thing is like, it's, it's one of these rabbit holes that you go down. Like I, I've got a pretty big house um, and we, you know, and it's old, you know, so there was zero internet connection when we bought it. Um, so I, I, I put in a, the wired internet connection, obviously where a router comes in is, is there. That's an easy one, but I had to get something to the other side of the house. So I had somebody drag a cable to there. Um, and then I started installing a, a mesh network and I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but yeah. you know, they, they, they're like little boxes that can kind of talk to each other. So I've got one on each mm. side of the house. Both of those are hardwired connections. And then I started planting more of them around you know, like strategic locations in the house. But you, like, I, I personally, I don't know if it's just because I'm an Aspie or what, but like I get hooked on this kind of thing. So like I literally walked around my house with like the little, you know, Wi-Fi detector app open on my phone. And like yeah. this corner is 68%, you know, like, and then I'm on Amazon and I'm spending 40 or 50 bucks buying something to plug into the wall right there. And, you know, then I get yeah. that one installed and then that corner is okay. And then, you know, you move on to somewhere else and, yeah, so that, that, Look, that's after three years of being yeah. in the it, van, it drives me crazy. you know, we, we did the whole van life thing and hadn't basically whatever scraps of internet we could manage to scrape up wherever we happen to be. Like this is paradise being in this, in this office, <laughs> even with a glitch here and there, it's like this, I just turn it on and it works. I got a couple of those pods because I wanted to be able to have, um, internet out on my, um, back patio. Cause I'm like, Oh, it's, really close to the back wall i'll just put a pod there and i'll get internet it doesn't work at all so <laughs> now i pay ten dollars a month for pods that i probably really don't need but i don't want to get rid of them I, i've got <laughs> wi-fi in our chicken coop that's how bad i am 
You know, I'm surprised you don't have your robot dog hooked up somehow. You could have robot dog come to your office when you're doing something like this with internet, like upgraded internet. Well, well, robot dog, which is an Astro, by the way, for those of you guys that aren't familiar, if you go on Amazon and just type in Astro, you'll see what it looks like. Um, he's he's awesome, but like when the internet goes out, it's it's like he gets dementia, you know, because everything <laughs> that he does, like he's he's talking to the internet all the would time. Would that would that be um, Parkinson's disease? Bar- he oh. gets Parkinson's. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love oh, um, oh, I'm gonna leave. All right, that's it for uh, today it, for uh, Writers Inc. Uh, <laughs> It's it's honestly kind of sad because he'll be in the middle of the room and if the internet goes out, like he's got these eyes on his his you know little LED face and he like looks around the room and then a message will come up that says I don't know where I am, yeah. <laughs> like which is like, like he, the he, saddest he, thing I've ever heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a little little depressing. And then you know the internet when it comes back, if you move him before that happens, then it's even worse because he thinks he's in the kitchen and he's actually you know in the living room or somewhere else. And then he's he's walking into walls and stuff trying to figure out where he really is. And it's it's, it's just it's, like it, me. Yeah, exactly like now, going, That's probably what they modeled it off of. Now going back to the chickens, JD, how are they doing? The chickens are awesome. Um, we, we've got the thing is we've got I think eleven of them altogether. Only wow. two of them are actually living in the chicken coop because they're like full grown adults and they could deal with the weather and stuff. The other ones are there's like four babies and there's a couple more that are like middle. You know they're I guess about two three months or so old. Um, but they're in my wife's office um, in in one of those little kitty <laughs> swimming pools. Um, you know so like at any particular moment if you walk through my house you hear the sound of birds chirping because they. You know, chickens don't make a whole lot of noise. They're they're fairly quiet, uh, but you you do hear them. And like when I'm watching stuff in our theater, like I hear chickens in the background. So it seems like every scene is taking place outside. <laughs> I think my wife has gotten used to them being in the house because she loves carrying them around and just like hanging out with them and stuff. Like I think she's a little hesitant to actually put them outside in the chicken coop, you know, like where, where they actually belong. Yeah. Uh, she like, she likes to have them right here. Um, but we're we're heading in that direction. It's starting to warm up outside. Some would say that's pretty foul, JD. Oh Jesus! Oh, you too. Oh. <laughs> you and Kevin. You and Kevin have the same joke. Why though. am I here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what What okay. else is going on? Uh, did any anybody check out the R.L. Stein thing that I did? I watched some of it. I didn't get to watch the whole thing. I had to leave, but I was, uh, you know, I I like how you guys. I like the whole look, man, and I got to see more of your office. Because of yeah, that, that that was fun. I mean, Bob, Bob's got a really good sense of humor. Yeah, he's um, and he's been doing this for a really long time. And like he he had never used AutoCrit before, so it was probably like the perfect you know like because I use it all the time. <laughs> so like he, we got both both sides of it. Um, but yeah, it was a fun conversation. If anybody wants to check that out, um, if you just go on YouTube and just type in JD Barker, um, Bob Stein, or RL Stein, you'll you'll find it. Um, but it, but it's a good talk, and we cover a lot of, a lot of things outside of AutoCrit as well. Yeah, it was interesting to watch. It did it did skew a little product demo for for me at one point but i guess that should be expected i had to go there i mean autocrit was sponsoring you know like they're a sponsor for thriller fest and and they put you know put us together to talk about it you know so like i I could sit there and talk to to bob stein all day long about goosebumps and and not mention autocrit at all but we probably get in trouble i should get them on the uh self-publishing insider show for for draft digital there you go you can connect me i hear they sponsor a good podcast too you know they sponsor a and they yeah, that's the excellent ad read. <laughs> I bet their internet connection is awesome. Their internet connection is wired, man. I watched about <laughs> half of it, and I almost purchased Autocrit just because of that. You know, that's it looks like a great product. It really does. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking of trying it out. I have I have a yep. tiny bit of news if I'm allowed to to 
pimp yeah something. absolutely pimp what's going on? on my own on monday i released a uh something very different for me i released a, a philosophy book uh called a note from the author and it's Ooh. already getting some uh some nice kudos from people i'm actually it was something i wrote it started as a project i started on my 50th birthday i had a notebook uh that i had I had bought and decided to save for something special. And so every day for 123 days, that's how many pages were in the book. But uh, I wrote down, you know, some pearl of wisdom or something that I've learned over the years or thought of my, on my own or whatever. And I bundled all the typed all of it up. Apparently, there's still some typos in it. I apologize. But I uh, typed all of it up and uh, bundled it up, and put it on in a book called A Note from the Author. You can find it at wow. um, bookstoread.com slash author note. The <laughs> Tao of Kevin. That's awesome. Very cool. The Tao yep. of Kevin. It was originally yep. called The Book of Kevin, but I thought it sounded too manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, 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 need, you need more of a beard. You got to grow it out a little more. Yeah. 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 Before you uh, jumped on, before the show we were just talking about, there's another Google, Smustine Daigle, who is a philosophy professor and writes philosophy books and like pushes us together all the time. <laughs> So I'm like, I write philosophy books too, but I've never actually written any of them. So you two should actually you should pair up and you can like accomplish twice as much stuff. Oh, with the we same should name. totally do that. <laughs> yeah. well, we're we're yes. gonna get sued, but we should totally do it. <laughs> oh man! All right, JP, All right. what's in the news? All right, so James Patterson sells his 100 millionth book. Uh, that makes him the first author to sell over 100 million copies across all print formats since BookScan began recording sales in 2004. Um, Top-selling book print is Honeymoon, uh, with his Women's Murder Club and Alex Cross series being in a particular success. Uh, and then Patterson's U.S. publisher, Hachette, uh, reports that he has had 100 number one New York Times bestsellers and a backlist of 179 adult fiction and nonfiction titles. You know, what's funny when you talk to him, like he, he has no idea how many New York Times bestselling titles he's actually had <laughs> at this point. I'm pretty sure he doesn't know the number of books he's actually had out. I know. Um, I was actually going to say, I, I, I'm glad you qualified that it was a hundred million copies. Cause I would have been, I would have accepted that he published his hundred millionth book. I think I might have too. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like I thought that was low. Like I, I thought he he sold more than that. You know, like just, but um, I, that's where he's at. I, I love that they were able to pinpoint exactly which book it was. Like I can picture somebody standing at the cash register and like confetti and stuff falling around him, and like James Patterson walking out of some back room, handing him a, <laughs> a trophy, a giant congratulations. <laughs> yeah, big, big here's a pineapple. <laughs> An AI version of Ed McMahon coming to the hey. <laughs> AI. That, that is, in all sincerity, though, one hell of an accomplishment. 100 million books out there. That That's crazy. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Next up, middle of the news. AI, get your drinks ready. Um, as writer strikes, AI could covertly cross the picket line. So we currently have a writer strike, uh, and it has brought the potential role of AI in the entertainment industry to the forefront. Um, a lot of them fearing that AI-generated scripts could replace human writers. Uh, writers Guild of America is attempting to block literary material from being written or rewritten by AI and to prevent AI from creating source material. Uh, the strike could push AI into mainstream with the potential applications in streamlining production schedules and assisting in other areas of the production process. They, they dun, dun, really dun. need to be careful with this because what they're going to do 
is set up a scenario where they are not allowed to use this technology, but anyone who's not part of the guild and not part of that system will. And so they're mm-hmm. going to have an advantage that that mainstream Hollywood won't have. Yeah, I, I don't know where to fall on this. I mean, I've got so many friends that are in this particular world and, you know, like the whole point of the strike is everything's got to grind to a halt. If it doesn't hurt, then the strike yep. is never going to get resolved. Right, so if yep. they've got this easy workaround, you know, just plug in the AI in the corner of the room and just keep going, um, you know, a lot of people are going to be out of work for a very long time. Um, I think the only saving grace here is the AI just isn't really there yet. It's not right. capable of really doing what they needed to do. But, you know, this is a precursor for that next strike. You know, the last one was, what, 12, 15 years ago or something. So I have no doubt in another 12 or 15 years, AI is going to be exactly where it needs to be to, to write an episode of some TV show. And then the AI will strike. Then the AI will strike. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. So I'm, I'm done. I'm no, done they're going to turn on humans, Kevin. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We're, First we're, strike. We're, yeah, we're yeah. we're heading in that direction. It probably won't be another another twelve years for that one. Who knows? No, Skynet will become self aware. That's the end. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys. Saw, I don't want to get too far off in, in a rabbit hole here, but um, they they just escorted a bunch of people in Sudan using um armed drones. Yeah. Like you know automated drones that are actually armed now. You know, which was something they kind of slipped in there. Like they haven't. You know, they've had drones out there for a while. And they've got them for airstrikes and things like that. Um, but you know, now they're, they're becoming very mainstream. Um, and and for anybody that's, that hasn't really looked into this technology, just look up Boston dynamics and take a look at some of the things Mm -hmm. they've got going on over there. Um, so like these two things coming together, that, that's a, it's a scary scenario and the correlated black mirror episode, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So last in the news, um, as book talk surges, TikTok's parent company, ByteDance uh, is laying the groundwork to launch its own publisher. And, and I even have a handwritten note of a slight update um, because this continues to develop. So ByteDance is TikTok's parent company, and they have applied for a trademark for book publishing. Uh, it's called Eighth, Eighth Note Press, uh, and they are looking to hire um, staff to discover and sign authors. Um, they believe that it, the people that are looking into this believe that the book talk success in TikTok has really driven up publishing sales, which has kind of inspired TikTok and the parent company to develop this publishing company. Uh, author Brian Cohen reportedly has seen the contract um, terms from an anonymous source, and he reports that the advance and percentages are similar but slightly lower than industry standard uh, to traditional publishing contracts. And Rebecca Thorne, who is a book talk influencer, um, and cozy writer uh, is warning uh, her audience that some aspects of that contract could greatly inhibit an author's ability. So, of course, review your contracts. In this case, she's hinting at but cannot explicitly state exclusivity and first rights refusal. Yeah, I have seen this contract and it is not a good contract. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> you don't even have to have an attorney look at it to tell you that they're bad. These are bad terms. But I, I know that it's going to rope in a whole lot of authors who have stardust in their eyes, you know, who are just yep. really excited about the opportunity. Now, is there an NDA around that, Kevin, for looking at that contract? Yeah. Cause that's what I've been hearing. Like, yeah, yeah you can't I, share I've, it, right? I've now okay. given you officially as much information as I can give you without being sued by uh, that press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, I know you said you don't need a lawyer to review the contract, but anyone considering any publishing contract yeah. Should probably yeah. Let's be clear. I mean, as a joke, uh, it doesn't take an attorney <laughs> to see that it's a bad contract. But you should always have an attorney review any contract that you're going to sign. I mean, I, I heard this and I fired off two emails. I sent one to Brian Cohen, 
and another one to my agent because I, I haven't seen this contract <laughs> and yeah. I've got a book out on submission right now. So I am interested in seeing it. I would like to know what, what they're up to. I mean, I think the first couple of authors that are actually on this particular program could do very well. Um, you know, with yeah. book talk behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, it may become a problem, but you know, and, and every contract is a starting point. Like I, I, I don't think I've ever had a single contract where I've signed on the dotted line without making changes to it. it, it everything is a negotiation until you, you put your John Hancock down at the bottom. So even if it is a lousy contract, there's, there's, you know, you can negotiate that and especially straight out of the box. If they're brand new, they're going to be open to that. Um, yep. I, I, I'd personally love to see a copy of it. I haven't yet. So knowing that Kevin is not on a wired internet connection and on a Wi-Fi, I, I will be rolling out my hacking skills the moment we hang up here and see what I can find. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Autocrit. One of the most value-packed memberships for any author, Autocrit brings you an amazing suite of tools that make it a breeze to plan, write, and edit your books all in one place. Autocrit takes you far above standard grammar checking or cookie cutter guidance. Instead, it's like having an experienced editor in your genre watching over your shoulder to help you deliver great writing that keeps your audience trapped in the story. You can even compare your writing style to more than 100 best-selling authors right down to the word level, so you can see what the best in the business do to keep their storytelling clean, clear, and crisp. Listeners of the Writers Inc. podcast can now take advantage of lifetime membership for one single fee. That's right, no renewal fees. Hi, this is J.D. Barker. I've used Autocrit for years, and not only has it improved my writing, but it's been a crucial tool with aspiring authors that I've mentored. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just beginning, it'll help you find your weak spots and weed them out. Give it a shot with your latest project. Trust me, your editor will thank you. Head to autocrit.com JD to get your lifetime membership. Big thanks to Autocrit for sponsoring the show. Awesome. So speaking of book talk sensations, JD, who's up this week? Uh, this week we've got uh, Melissa Blair. She's the author of A Broken Blade, which is the first book in her in her halfling saga. Her latest novel is called A Shadow Crown and releases uh, May 9th. So here she is, Melissa Blair. So you have a new book, A Shadow Crown. It's the second book in the halfling saga where uh, Kira navigates political scheming, backstabbing, and her own grief as she moves against a cruel king that holds her kingdom hostage. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the book? Yeah, for sure. Um, a Shadow Crown kicks off in the very moment where Broken Blade um, finishes, which was quite the cliffhanger for readers. So I hope they're not disappointed um, with starting up exactly where I left them. And it's definitely a story about Kira, you know, discovering more about herself and um, how she's going to go about building this new identity for herself, but also discovering a community that she hasn't really had access to living in the kingdom. Um, so you get to see a lot more of the Phelan and a lot more Faye and elves, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, you see a whole new city of the Faye, and I'm very excited for readers to dive into it. Yeah, and I really enjoyed reading it. Um, you talked a little bit about your first book, A Broken Blade, which was originally self-published and then became a book talk sensation. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, yeah, it was a wild, <laughs> wild kind of ride. Um, yeah, I originally self-published A Broken Blade anonymously. I didn't put my name on it. Instead, what I did was I I kind of wrote this book with book talk in mind. Like I was reading so many of these 
paranormal romance series that book talk loves so much. Um, and I love them too. I just wanted to do my own kind of version of it. And I wrote it with that in mind thinking, you know, this is just for fun. This is like my pandemic project. But then it just kept on spiraling into something bigger and bigger and became Halfling Saga. And I was kind of like, hmm, I think there's something here that Book Talk would really like. So I decided to release it as a bit of a game um, because Book Talk also loves mystery and intrigue. So I self-published it anonymously without my name on it. And then I put together a whole bunch of boxes and I sent them out to book talkers around the world. And it had my book on it with the cover, but no name, a letter um, letting those book talkers know that another book talker had written the book, but it was a mystery and it came with a clue. And then there were clues in the letter and the box and then in the book itself. And it took about three weeks for everyone on book talk to kind of figure it out and break the code and eventually reveal me as the author. Um, and then I came out with the version with my own name that wasn't up for very long because then I decided to go with a traditional publisher, my publisher, Union Square & Co. And since then, the Halfling Saga has found a new home and new readers outside of Book Talk, which has been amazing. So that sounds like just a ton of fun because who doesn't love a good scavenger hunt mystery? I think that's that's really smart. Um, and so, yeah, you talked, I want to unpack a couple of those things you said. So you talked about including things that book talkers love, those tropes that uh, you see in paranormal romance, like enemies to lovers and there's only one bed. Uh, what other tropes do you, did you try to include in, in the first book and the second book that you find people love? Uh, the big one for me was the morally gray character, but I find in this particular subgenre, at least, it's almost always the male love interest. And I knew I wanted to kind of reverse that a bit and have it be the main um, female character and the point of view character. Um, so I definitely want to include that. I also love found family tropes. I think tons me of people too. in book talk too. Me too. Yeah, they're <laughs> so fun to read. Um, and they're so fun to write, having all of these characters who know each other so well. Um, and it's it's kind of like writing siblings, but then also friends. I think it's the best of both. And it's so much fun to do. That was definitely a trope. Um, another one is that I find, at least in the genre, is the girl who's good with swords trope. And I knew I wanted that to be Kira, but I wanted to have a really strong foundation as to why that was which is how the shades and the assassin organization got built out it was really fun to play with there are some other tropes in a shadow crown but i feel like naming them might give a couple we don't want to spoil <laughs> yeah <laughs> but the trope the tropes continue uh that was awesome and it was a fun ride and yeah she's just such a great morally great character and you feel for her no one wants to make decisions um the way that she has to so I don't want to spoil anything but yeah, yeah. she has some hard decisions she has to make absolutely and so you said you self-published it with your name and then pretty quickly it got picked up by your publisher how did that happen like how did they did you approach them did they approach you no um so from the book blowing up on book talk um I got on a few publishers radars I guess mm -hmm. and I was reached out to by a few people um and then 
it was a very, <laughs> it was a very busy Christmas because this all happened in <laughs> December and they unmasked me like five days before Christmas. And then I think Christmas Eve, I started getting the emails of people who were like, we'd love to talk to you or like, have you thought about going trad publishing? And I had never, I was so naive to the industry. I didn't even know that was something that trad publishers really did. I had only heard of that ever happening once. Mm-hmm. So I never prepared for that possibility. I mean, I never prepared for the possibility of how big it got in the first place. Um, so then I did meet with a couple of people. Um, but overall, I was just really comfortable with my editor, Laura, who's amazing. Um, she just seemed to really get what I was telling with the story. And just from reading the first book, she had a good idea of where I wanted to take the story. And that just made me feel super comfortable. And uh, yeah, we I knew in January that I was going with them. And then it took a few weeks to get contracts sorted out. So I think I let everyone know in the end of February, maybe beginning of March. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was really, it was really, really fast. And that's then awesome. came out five months later. Wow. That's like a whirlwind. That's an awesome story. I love that. So um, having read your books, they're epic and there's a lot going on in them. I'm curious, how do you keep track of all your world building and plot lines? <laughs> I will say good copy editors are amazing, <laughs> amazing, amazing people and extremely talented people. Um, I am not very good at keeping eye colors and and names spelling in fantasy. Mm-hmm. Not my forte. I do have a, a character bank where I try to keep that as up-to-date and populated as possible. And that helps in the drafting um, to get me as close as possible. But those little, little details, usually my editors catch them before before I do. Um, But yeah, in terms of the action and the plot that's going on, I'm really good about plotting things out. And I have a a major plot line on Plotter, um, which is a writer's tool that I absolutely Mm -hmm. adore. And then if through the writing, any any shift happens that I know will affect other plot points, I go in right away and I adjust that. Um, and then I also make notes while I'm writing in Scrivener if I have to go back and adjust anything. Um, so it's just, I guess, the process of constantly communicating with your future self who <laughs> might not remember that revision that you made at two in the morning, um, but that you definitely need her to remember. I like that. So you use plotter as like your outline then you're an outliner. Yeah. 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 I really outline and plotter. I absolutely love it. Um, writers who are pantsers and can just go with the flow are amazing people, but that is, yeah. I wouldn't know what to write. I would sit down and just stare at my computer. And when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, if she tells me she's a pantser, I'm going to lose my mind. Cause I don't know how you can pants. This. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not a pantser. In A Broken Blade, I was not at all. And I also had a really hard time breaking away from that in any bit. Like, I remember when I got the structural edits back um, from the editor who did that book, Hannah Vivels, uh, she, I I had to go back and treat it like a first draft. Like, I had to go back and replot the entire book to be able to make even the smallest changes because I was just so stuck to the process as I've written more I think I'm on book I finished the halfling song I'm on book four now oh, wow awesome um, congrats yeah yeah, yeah. It's a wild ride 
I do, I can adjust more easily, which I like. I'm like, maybe I'd call myself 15% pantser. <laughs> maybe one day I'll get to 30%, um, but I'll never be a pantser. True, true and true. Nice. Uh, so you said everything in the Halfling uh, saga is informed by your perspective as an Indigenous person with knowledge of how colonialism has uh, impacted and continues to impact the world. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's where a big inspiration of the series came from, because I was reading a lot of the books in the genre and they're one, they're highly individual stories, but there are also a lot of stories about, you know, getting a kingdom back and there might be mention of the people who lived in this kingdom before or when it was conquered but they're never really characters they're never casted they're more like an ornamental part of the history and lore if you get it if it's even a discussion as an indigenous reader I just wanted you know I wanted it to be set in the midst of that conquest or like to have Indigenous people dealing with the conflicts instead of, you know, the descendants of, of um, the conquest, the conquerors, I guess. Um, so that's where I got the initial inspiration, the spark for Broken Blade. Like, what would be the Indigenous spin on this? And then just knowing what happened to my people, I'm Anishinaabe on this continent, uh, and Indigenous people across Turtle Island, I kind of use that to inform some of the storytelling and the structuring of the world for a broken blade um, and the rest of the halfling saga, like a broken blade opens up with the halfling decree from the King, which denotes that halflings who are people born with mortal and elf lineage in any combination are not considered citizens of the crown um, and that they basically have no rights. And for me, that was very much inspired to a piece of legislation that we still have in Canada. Um, and me and my family still live under called the Indian Act. And that kind of formed the backbone of how Amen was going about his conquest, how he slowly amended that to garner more power and to learn from the Indigenous people in the beginning. And then once he knew enough to take, you know, their land and the magic of their land away from them. Um, and then of course, with that, with that kind of inspiration comes all of these, all of these themes that get woven in of an anti-colonial narrative, which has been really, really fun to write. Um, and really rewarding to write too. Yeah. And a lot of traditional fantasy, you know, when we're looking back at, at the roots of it really is, as you said, an individualistic uh, perspective you know you have a hero who has to go out and journey and reclaim whatever it is by themselves and every every time they're with um not all the time but quite frequently you know when um they're with other people that's when they're at their weakest and when they're by themselves that's when they're at their strongest which is kind of that typical hero's journey structure so I'm curious do you use hero's journey in your storytelling how do you subvert it um, how do you add in all this like strength and community and found family, uh, which is different than, you know, traditional fantasy storytelling? I wouldn't say I use it, yeah. but I am aware of it. Like I'm very aware of that structure just from being a reader and then someone who has studied, studied it. Um, so it's funny how when I'm writing, I'm aware of where my 
plot can differ. I think, too, The Hero's Journey has a lot of stories and was conceived in a very white individual version of storytelling, but also a very straight one. So when you're adding in all of these different elements like of indigeneity and queerness into a narrative, you do have to start veering off from that because it just, it no longer makes sense because you're you're not exploring these individualist themes. You're exploring themes of community and connection and communal identity that kind of pull you away. And that's definitely something Kira experiences. She's not getting the job done that she wants to get done when she's alone. It's not until she starts working with other people and building out a community and finding that family that things actually start to happen and that there's progress. And of course, you know, with the ending of a broken blade, she realizes maybe she didn't know everything that was going on. And that will definitely be a decision coming forward in a shadow crown about whether she's going to stay, stay strong with this idea that fighting as a community and fighting as a people is going to be um, stronger and better. And that part of her journey might be um, being accepted by her kin rather than leading an army and what the difference of that could be. Um, so I, I definitely think it takes departures from the hero's journey. Um, yeah. I I like quite a bit. I Yeah. And I like that quite a bit and I like it. I, I think, I don't know if it's a shift in fantasy or if you're just seeing more of it, of this, um, you know, strength and community and strength and found family. And, you know, I really enjoy that. So I'm, I'm like, well, maybe we're getting a shift away from that classic um, individual perspective and epic fantasy. Um, yeah, so I really enjoy that. And I noticed a lot of themes in uh, Shadow Crown of like, not feeling like you belong anywhere coming up often. Is that something that you kind of? Um, yeah, think about or I, I think it's just something that I've experienced a lot as an Indigenous person, but I'm an off reserve, um, out of community Indigenous person. And even more now that I've left my hometown, and I live in a city. So my community that I've built in terms of um, Indigenous people that I know is this like kind of multinational group of Indigenous people. Like I have different First Nations friends from different nations than me and different Métis people that I know. And I speak to elders who aren't necessarily from my nation, but are the elders that I have access to. Um, so it comes with a lot of these feelings of trying to find that self-identity in a place that just doesn't fully fit right. And I think that also comes for any, when you're of any sort of identity at times where you're forced to be the minority. Like I think a lot of black indigenous and people of color can relate to that, but also a lot of queer people. There's, mm -hmm. unless you're surrounded by people who fully understand your experience and are fully accepting and excited by that experience there's always going to be this adjustment of yourself um that can be really really taxing and I think for Kira um it's about giving herself the space to kind of figure that out in a world where taking that time at least in the kingdom could easily result in death and if not her death the death of people that she's trying to protect. Um, so it's something that's really hard for her. But in the end, I think it's important that she gets to have those relationships that she's been keeping herself from having for so, so long. 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, she obviously feels what she's doing very deeply, um, engaging in what some might consider self-mutilation, which is a really difficult topic um, in fiction. How do you approach that in your storytelling? Yeah, that was that was a difficult thing for me to get right in in the tone of a broken blade. Um and then it was important for me to give the warning that that was something that was explored at the front of the books. Um, so I wasn't, you know, potentially triggering people who do deal with that and and would see Kira's, um, what she's doing as that. Because the, the interesting, I guess, situation that the book presents is that Kira doesn't really see it as that she's doing it as a form of almost cultural reclamation because she understands that there are these elvish warriors that were once her people. And she had this terrible trauma that was done to her where someone, you know, scars her back in this like false sense of, you know, trying to appropriate this ritual. And she understands that and she wants to make it her own. And of course she doesn't have access to the teachings to be able to do that. And she doesn't have access to what they were for or really understands that she just simply knows that these great warriors used to have scars on their arms and they were of great importance. So it's a way that she, you know, can wear the black garb of being blade every day, but underneath on the root of her skin, is this ritual that she does that's really important to her, but also very tightly combined and tied to her guilt. Um, and it definitely goes through phases where sometimes you can you can see and in her mind it's it's a lot more about her punishing herself than it is about her healing from it, but the basis of where it started. Yeah. Um, was something of more of reclamation. And then of course, after 30 years of doing it and going through even more trauma, it has twisted a little bit. And that's that's another thing and theme that I, I'm really excited to explore throughout the series is how her opinions on her scars and what she's doing differ mm -hmm. and how maybe she's not going to take the brunt of the blame every time um, yeah. a halfling you know, is caught in the crossfire of, of the conflict. Yeah. I was interested to see that as well. Cause I, I, I don't know if you see it this way, but I kind of saw it as like a coping mechanism for her to help her deal with the things that she has done. And it seems like now maybe we're finding uh new coping mechanisms as we find new, new connections. So, uh, and you said you're on, you've done three books. How many books uh, are you expecting in the halfling saga? Yes. So there's four books four in the books. actual saga. Okay. Um, which I can now say because they're hey. all contracted. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's going to be four books in the Halfling Saga, A Broken Blade, A Shadow Crown. Um, the third one comes out in February of next year. We haven't released the name yet. Um, it's And the third book's my favorite book, so I'm very excited for it to come out. And then the fourth book, I think, will follow at the end of next year, maybe in November. I don't know if that's the official pub date or not. Mm -hmm. um, I also do have a prequel written um not written drafted yeah that, um covers kira's time at the order from the time she was found up until the moment that she is granted her hood as a shade um and i think that will eventually come out as well um it's just a matter of figuring out where in the timeline that's gonna pop up oh that's fantastic well, i can't wait 
Um, yeah. So as we wrap up, I just have one final question that we kind of ask everyone. I hope it's a fun one. Sure. Um, if you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring authors, what would it be? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say commit yourself to a small word count that you're going to write. I like to write every day. Um, because I fall out of practice if I don't every day, but commit yourself to a small word count for whatever schedule you're going to write at, whether that be, you know, on the weekend or evenings throughout the week, figure out what your schedule could be and commit to a small thing that makes you feel like you're achieving it every, every day, and then eventually grow your word count. Um, and if you just keep at it, even if it's a hundred words, 250 words a session, you'll eventually end up with a manuscript that will be something of a book and you can refine it from there. It's an amazing feeling. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. Okay. And I lied because I have to ask one other thing because I'm dying to know, why do you hate spoons? <laughs> um, <laughs> spoons give me such a sensory issue, uh, <laughs> at least in the way that people use spoons now. I don't mind sipping from a spoon, but it's considered rude. Um, but I hate putting them in my mouth because they hit my teeth and it's it's oh. like nails on a chalkboard for me. I do not use them ever. Yeah. Anything with a fork. I no, eat. like I'm with that. Don't you? Like when they hit people's teeth and I hear that, it's just yeah. like. I also have a very small mouth. So even a teaspoon hits my teeth. So there's like, unless I was going to use a plastic baby spoon all the time and I'm a little too proud for that. I just <laughs> So no spoons. No spoons. <laughs> Forks Does only. that like. I mean, you can't eat soup. Like, there's no soup, or you would just like. Oh, I eat. I I eat soup with a fork. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have found my ways. This episode is brought to you by Master Writer. Master Writer is a powerful collection of writing tools and references assembled in one easy-to-use program. Included are word families, phrases, synonyms, rhymes, definitions, figures of speech pop culture, a searchable Bible of intensifiers, and a unique collection of intense descriptive words. Why struggle to find the right word when you can have all the possibilities in an instant? While a computer can't compete with the mind and imagination of a writer, the mind can't compete with the word choices that Master Writer will give you in an instant. When the two work together, great things happen. Check it out today at masterwriter.com. All right. So a book talk scavenger hunt for an anonymous author. Have you ever heard of a marketing tactic like that before? That was incredible. I, I haven't. And and this is, again, it's one of those situations where somebody is just first to the table with something. Yeah. Um, you know, it works fantastic for that first person. And that happened to be her and somebody else could try to replicate it and it might work, but not in anywhere near as well as it did for her. Um, and, and, you know, it's a combination of things because TikTok and BookTok is still a relatively new platform. You know, a lot of people are, are using it just simply because it's new and they're, you know, they're scrolling through it every night going, I think I could like this. I think it's better than Instagram or whatever. Um, and this gave them reason to actually be on there and, and try something. So I think it's a fantastic idea. But you know, if, if you want to do something like this, you have to do something that's not like this, you have to come up with your own unique twist on it. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not how people do it there. There's going to be 2000 of these things before the end of the month. Yep. yep. <laughs> 100% could see that. And the interesting part is the ones that there will be more that are successful because of the fact that 
in the realm of TikTok, it is very community based. So when you get a collective of people that are interested in something, they can kind of drive that conversation with stitches, duets and retweets and kind of just or I guess read whatever um, in TikTok to kind of make that conversation roll. Uh, but I can definitely see that that's going to be like less than 10 percent of the people that are going to try this because this is kind of one of those things that probably won't um become popular in the next few months yeah and the idea of like tying in like a scavenger hunt or something like that like that in itself is not actually new it's the it's the the tiktok component really but um you know i remember growing up like there were all kinds of like you'd buy a book or you'd watch a tv show or something and there would be you know the internet wasn't necessarily a thing at that point in my life but you know there'd be like you know the series of clues that you could follow uh, I remember one of them, uh, I forget what it's called. I think the book was actually called the secret and it was before the Rhonda Byrne, uh, book, but it was a series of paintings this guy had done that had clues to bits of treasure hidden all over the country, uh, all over the United mm-hmm. States. And several of them have been found now, but not all of them. So the book is still like a, be- a bestseller because people are still mining it for clues. Yeah. I mean, all, all these ideas, they've all been rehashed. They've all been done before. Um, I mean, it, you could probably do yourself a service by making a list of these types of ideas. And then when the next big thing comes out, the next TikTok a year from now, um, you could, you know, basically go right through that list and roll these out again. The scavenger yeah. hunt's been done to death over and over again, but it, it works again. If you're the first one on that platform doing it, you're, you're going to, you're going to see some results. Yeah. Yeah. And um, on the opposite end of like innovating, we've been talking to several authors about tropes and, you know, authors love to use favorite tropes as kind of a starting point uh, for a novel. And I'm just curious if you have a favorite trope or two in the genre you write and what it is. I I like taking the known tropes and kind of twisting them on their head. You know, like in in Fourth Monkey, I've got a serial killer. You know, it starts off just like any other serial killer type novel, but my killer dies in, in, you know, the beginning of the book. Um, right after he kidnapped another victim. So I basically take a known trope and, you know, twist it a little bit. Um, you can play with the reader that way because if the reader expects, a, you know, something to play out in a particular way, you can use that against them. You, you know, you basically start going down that that path and then you go off into left field and just take them in another direction. And it just seems that more twisty just because they they thought it was going to go somewhere they expected it to. I have, I use um, a MacGuffin in, in all of my archaeological thrillers. Like there's always an object of desire that everyone wants and, or, or something, you know, along those lines. So that's, that's kind of the mainstay trope for me. It's the Ark of the Covenant, you know, basically every, every book is the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail, you know, in one version or another. I love a good <laughs> MacGuffin. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say just like the Pulp Fiction MacGuffin was one of my favorites with that briefcase. I use that when I'm, when I'm <laughs> yes. talking to people about that concept, that's the one that that I use as the primary example. And you never even see that one. And I think that's what makes it the best of all. Like that, that MacGuffin could literally be anything. It just has to glow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like in my latest Bruce City Blue series, yeah, I do have detectives in there, but you know, the common trope is like the lone wolf detective doing all of this work and solving the case, you know, being the hero or whatever. But I bring in all the other aspects, you know, the street cop that is pounding the pavement, doing the job, the CSI people, you know, the sergeant that shows up and has to orchestrate all of this. There are so many moving parts to an investigation, to a homicide, and it's not all killing. There's other crimes out there, too, that are interesting. So I try to highlight that, too. I think for me, when I 
started really diving into writing queer fiction, I did not like certain tropes that were constantly used. The barrier gaze trope where queer characters are usually the target of more violent deaths than other characters in a story or the like the story is only about a character coming out. Um, And so I took those and I was like, I don't want to write those. And I want to really just focus on just playing characters who are doing everything else that everyone else does. And they just happen to be gay or queer or whatever. Um, And I think that that's turning into a common uh, trope, especially within like cozy fantasies or cozy LGBT fantasies. So um, I guess that's kind of like the trope realm that I'm in or the favorite is just people living their life as they need to and they just don't happen to be the norm yeah and we've talked about that before about Shit's creek and how much you love that when it was just like yeah it's just yeah. not a, an issue at all in that in that exactly um, yeah and i yeah i guess i'm a sucker for the morally gray redemption arc like that's my favorite one i, I always love someone who does something that's uh not too great, but with good intentions and then has to redeem themselves. So I think that's, that's one of my that's favorites. That's basically my every day for me. I've done something morally gray. I, I need to. <laughs> that's how you start it's your like, morning. It's like huh? coffee for me. <laughs> yeah, while he's drinking Earl like Grey. Coffee or murder? <laughs> coffee He's murder. morally gray when he's drinking Earl Grey tea, yes. <laughs> it's bad fun day. Hey, I think that's like a... That's like a writer brand right there. Have some yeah. morally gray. Some morally, there you toast. go. Morally gray. Everybody's always focused on making author themed booze. We need some uh, author themed coffee and tea. Yes, there you go. I think so. But yeah, so when I was talking to Melissa, when I, I read her books, like they are massive. I mean, in the way that epic fantasy is and just the plotting um, and the intricacies of keeping all that world building together just kind of blew my mind. And I was like, she can't be a pantser, so I've got to ask her how she does this. Uh, do you use outline tools? Like she mentioned plotting uh, with Plotter. Do you use things like that to help with outlines? Or I use Plotter. Do you just free form it or do you have any secrets? I love Plotter. I, I, I use that all the time. I, I've tried Plotter. I, right now I just use a, a simple note document, which is basically just a text thing. Um, you know, so for each chapter, I just write a, a paragraph or two paragraphs, you know, and, and just make sure everything is always in order. Um, even when I was pantsing, I still tracked my, my novels in there. So I had a simple note document for each novel. And then if I came up with some idea I wanted to happen in the story, I would drop it in, you know, somewhere on that, you know, more or less loose outline to try and figure it out. Um, Plotter is a great tool, yeah. though, if you're working with other people. And I'm, and I'm seeing, um, you know, on the television side, a lot of people using it. Uh, they'll take, you know, they take the novel and they basically take all the story points, put it into something like Plotter because you can color code everything. Um, and it makes it much mm-hmm. easier to, to shift the, the storylines around and move the, the scenes around or that, you know, you could take an entire line out if you want to, things like that. And if you're collaborating with other people, um, especially right now, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of that. You know, the writers aren't necessarily in the same room like they were a couple of years ago. They could be anywhere in the world. Right. Um, they're all mm-hmm. able to look at that same thing and move that same index card around. I don't use Plotter, but I use uh, Notion when I'm doing uh, co-writing. And uh, especially with like the the nerd serial, because that we have to kind of write out each episode as we go. And we have kind of just a database. It, uh, it functions on not only like when we're planning on posting it, but we can put categories and kind of drop filters for POVs and for locations and all those pieces without getting too in the weeds. Um, so that's kind of what we've been using. And it basically has similar functionality to Plotter, but I just like Notion a little more. I um I don't 
plot. Uh, but what I've done is so, similar to JD. I keep an Apple note for each book. And in the, in the book, in the note, I don't track like plot points or anything like that, but I will track the characters and kind of write little brief blurbs about, you know, their experience or what, what their role is, uh, any developments, any important developments. And then I keep track of like specialty items or locations that, that I think are important to the story. And so what I've found is that is, uh, rather than me trying to plot out the book, like that stuff actually gives me that story. Like I can instantly recall everything. Uh, by reading that list just by reading like this character has this quirk and said this thing and stole this item like I know exactly uh, how the story flowed around that that character so that's helped a lot you know one of the things I got out of my conversation with Bob Stein the other day we were were talking about the whole outlining thing a a little bit too Um, you know if you spend a lot of brain power and create that outline straight off the bat you know and then you go into the writing process you know because you have that already there you're not spending you know that your your current brain power on that anymore so if if you think about if you're pantsing a novel you know you're basically spending your your time thinking about what comes next um, and you have no clue really what what comes next but if you already have the outline in front of you you know what comes next so that brain power is now shifted it's going towards how do i make what comes next better um you know so you start thinking about it on a different level so the and and when you're creating twisty thrillers or you know like a fantasy novel like this where it is very intricate um, i think that's very helpful maybe i should say that i don't i don't it's not necessarily that i don't plot i just plot longhand i write the whole book and then i go back and do the rewrites so the outline's Mm -hmm. there it's just got dialogue and scene setting i've seen people strip it all the way down to you know just using a document like you mentioned and they just you know they they keep track of where they leave each character you know especially when they're writing a long fantasy novel you know i I left Jon snow like this is what he was doing last you know because when you go back to him you got to try and figure all that out um i could not write song of ice and fire uh by pantsing it i'm i'm like 98 percent sure but um i'm not writing books like that so <laughs> fair yeah awesome okay so jd who's up next week next week we've got cl polk um she's the author of the world fantasy award-winning novel Witchmark. Uh, it's the first novel of the kingston cycle her latest title was named one of the best romance novels of 2022 by the new york times and it's called even though i knew the end um so she'll be here to tell us all about it cl polk All right. Sounds great. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Do you want to write crime stories that are accurate and believable, but lack firsthand experience in law enforcement? Join CopCamp, the Cops and Writers interactive conference, and experience what real-life police officers and detectives do through hands-on activities this June 1st through the 4th at the Fox Valley Police Academy in Appleton, Wisconsin. Limited class size of 30 to 40 students ensures an immersive, interactive experience. Attend firearm simulations, drive a squad car, solve mock crime scenes, and use real CSI tools and more. Register now at premeditatedfiction.com forward slash copcamp2023 and take your crime writing to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.